0: This morning we continue a teaching series that we're in that we started last week, an Advent series called We're Expecting. It's kind of like what we do around Christmas time, you know, so like speaking of Christmas, uh, you know, how many of you uh, have your tree? How many have your tree up? Very good. How many, uh, keep your hand raised, how many have like a real tree, like a live real tree? I mean, it's dead, but it's it's a tree, it's a real tree. We just got ours yesterday. We Ever since watching Christmas Vacation, we're in the habit of making sure it gets a good shake so all the squirrels get out of it you know, before we bring it into the house. We have our tree. How, how many have been listening to Christmas music? How many have been listening to Christmas music for quite a while now? How many like when that song, The Christmas Shoes, comes on, you cry? Me neither. I, I, I don't cry at that song. Yeah. How many have watched uh, like more than five Hallmark Christmas movies already this year? Yeah, one of the guys I went with who will remain nameless, like I found out he watches Hallmark movies, so we took his man card. (laughs) All right, in the church calendar, in the church calendar, we're in this season called Advent, right? Advent. It's the, the first season in the Christian church year and includes the four Sundays preceding leading up to Christmas. Now, Advent has themes that are connected to Christmas, but Advent is also distinct from Christmas. Christmas is about joy. Advent is about hope. Christmas is about fulfillment, but Advent is more about expectancy and longing. Christmas is sort of this feast that we enjoy. Advent is technically a fast. In the church calendar, sometimes it's called Little Lent. Advent literally means, if you look up the word Advent, it literally means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Advent is the time of year when we as the the church, when we remember Jesus' coming, but we also anticipate his return. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And this year our Advent series is titled We're Expecting. Facing up to our expectations about Jesus at Christmas and I'm just really grateful to Brendan and for Jesse Like who put this series together for us. You're actually going to get to hear from Jesse next week. He's going to be sharing a message with us which I'm really excited about. So uh, this morning I'm going to talk about expectations that the people of Jesus's day had surrounding his birth and the coming of the Messiah and the King. So as we think about that will you pray with me please. Lord as we open up the word of life and as we allow it to speak to us, and as we contemplate such a familiar story that we revisit every year around this time, I pray that you would breathe fresh wind and fresh life into this story, and that it would intersect um, this moment in time where we are in our lives, and that uh, you would speak to us, and that we would not just hear from you. We would listen to you and do what you say. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at a bunch of different scriptures, but I want to start with a a scripture that's really caught my attention recently. You know, as I was thinking about this message, even this week, and it's it's something that Paul writes in his letter that he wrote to the Galatian church, and it's found in Galatians 4, verse 4. It's a very simple verse. Listen to this. It says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. A couple things in there that got my attention. First of all, it says that God sent. I mean, that's a familiar phrase. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son. So so there's this sending involved. God sent Jesus, implying that Jesus was going to go from somewhere he was to somewhere he wasn't, which means Jesus was going to come from heaven to earth. And, and we know that. We've got, we've got familiar scriptures that, that emphasize that and remind us of that. I think of John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. In the Word there is Jesus, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. So, so Jesus eternally existed before creation. He he, he was there before the beginning. He was with God at the very beginning. He he was with God in heaven. Or I think of the the words that Paul pens to, to his friends, to the Colossian church in the beginning of his letter. He says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me describe Jesus to you. The Son Jesus, you know who he is? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Such an amazing description of Jesus. Really kind of giving us a, a, a big macro view. Like. Like everything that's ever been created is inside of Jesus. He is outside of it. He's beyond it. He, 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 he came from a place way beyond earth. He, he, the, the creator stepped into creation. And, and we know like, that's what, what Paul's talking about when he writes to his friends in Philippi. He, and he's talking about you know, our relationships and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God, he was God in him, all things were held together. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. All this just affirms Jesus was... One place, heaven, beyond everything, and he chose to step into the brokenness and the messiness of, of creation. He was sent here on purpose, intentionally. It wasn't a random thing. But, but Galatians 4, remember, it also says, at, at just the right time. When, when things were all set at just the right time, God sent his son. Now that's just a curious phrase. What, what, what made it the right time? What made it the right time for God to send Jesus from heaven to earth? I mean, what was going on? Isaiah prophesied about the time that Jesus was going to be born. You know, centuries before. He, said, he described it was going to be like this. There's going to be this people. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then if you keep reading in verse 6, you get that familiar you know verse you know for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given so isaiah looking ahead said it it's going to be a dark time but G, but light is going to step forth and light is going to be inserted in so so what was going on what was going on why did isaiah describe it as darkness what was going on culturally religiously when when Jesus was born so I want to attempt this morning to very quickly just give some some very general context to a very specific and a very complex time scholars believe that Jesus was born somewhere around six to four BC okay that, that that's kind of where they kind of place the birth of Jesus Christ it probably wasn't in December it wasn't on December 25, that's just the date that has been, you know, chosen to commemorate his birth. You know, it was probably more like in September. Um, probably born like in, in some sort of cave, you know, that was used as a shelter or a stable. You know, it could even have been like under a home. Um, but but that's when, when we think Jesus was probably born around 6 to 4 BC. What made that the right time? What made that the, the appointed time Like things are aligned for God to now send his son. What's going on? Well, a few things. Let's remember, first of all, that the voice of God has been silent for like four centuries. God God has not been heard for like 400 years. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, prophesies that... um, in the end, you know, at the end of Malachi, he prophesies that God would send Elijah the prophet as a forerunner, as a foretaste of the Messiah, the king, coming. Then there's silence for 400 years. And during those centuries... You know, you have different things going on, you know, in Judea and in that part of the world. During those centuries, you have what's called the Seleucid Empire, which was a Greek empire, the Hellenization of the land. And during that time, a lot of Israelites were killed. It was not an easy time for the people of God. Finally, the Maccabees rose up and revolted and kicked them out of the land. And then Rome came, and they were even worse. They were even worse. Rome controlled the land of Israel during the time of Jesus' birth. And one particular person that gets mentioned in Scripture, um, the ruler of of the area where the Israelites were was Herod the Great. you probably heard of him. Herod the Great. He was the Roman-appointed ruler of Judea, the self-appointed king of the Jews. He ruled and reigned over the people of Israel. Now, I mean, on the one hand, Israel was no longer in exile. They were back in their land. But they were kind of exiles in their own land, um, in their own country. Even you know, their temple had been rebuilt by a foreigner, you know, rebuilt by Herod the Great. Herod, he was a, a tyrant. I mean, you can, you can read about him. He was a tyrant. He was ruthless. He was paranoid, insecure, brutal. And he was responsible for the deaths of many Jews. Well, not just Jews. He was responsible for the death of all kinds of people. He was a paranoid individual. Anyone that he ever deemed as a threat to his power, he just simply executed and had murdered. He even had his, uh, his wife and two sons murdered. He, he ruled the, the land of Judea with an iron, bloody fist. At the same time, Herod, he was also like brilliant. In ambitious. He understood the power of, of public opinion. And so like he was a master builder. He's known for building things. He would build theaters and fortresses and palaces and altars all throughout Judea. He built an amphitheater in Jerusalem. All to try to win the favor of the people. He, he actually was like one of the world's greatest builders. He was sort of this instinctive architectural genius. Everything he built was overkill and epic. It it really was. And to this day, he's known for his colossal, mind-boggling building projects. I mean, go go check out, you know, online, like, or or go there if you can. Like, his palace in Caesarea, like, on, on the water. Like, it's the things he pulled off and built, like, I don't understand, it, it, in his day, it was mind boggling, um, or, or or the fortress at Masada, or there was the Herodium, I have a picture, of the Herodium, the Herodium, you you can see, I got two pictures here, uh, it's this sort of like, volcano looking, you know, rise in the, on the, on the horizon, you know, just outside of Bethlehem, this is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, maybe about just three miles east, of Bethlehem, and, uh, You know, there's the the view from afar, and then there's the view looking down from above. And actually, there's more that that is crumbled. Like, there there were spiral towers that rose up from the top of this thing. It was an impressive, impressive fortress palace that Herod had built near Bethlehem. And actually, part of that mountain is even artificial. Like, he, he he wanted to build on a mountain, so he had a mountain built. Like, like amazing what this guy did. And, and he built this amazing fortress just outside of Bethlehem. So, so think about Luke 2. Okay, think about the story, the familiar story that we read in Luke chapter 2 where, where Caesar Augustus, he's, he's issued a decree, right? Issued a decree that everyone needs to return to their town of origin and be counted for a census. You know, just another reminder to the Israelites that, that you are controlled by other people you have to go to the town of origin of your family and be counted and so we know the story Joseph's family line traces back to Bethlehem so Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to be counted and bringing along with him is he brings Mary with him you know Mary is very pregnant with child so they have to make this trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably 90 to 100 miles, probably walked the whole way. And uh, Mary's very pregnant with child. And and as they get near Bethlehem, they obviously, indefinitely, and certainly, came within sight of the Herodium, of this powerful, amazing structure, this fortress, this palace, that was a reminder to everyone around of who's in charge, of who is king of the land. They would have had to walk within the shadow of that building. And I got to imagine Mary in her mind had to have been contemplating the words that Gabriel gave her just months before. Like Mary, you're going to be with child. And and the baby boy in your womb, he's going to be king. And his kingdom will never end. I mean, that had to be stirring in her spirit as she walked past this, this picture of the current king. In his powerful kingdom, and what that must have been like. So, so that's just some of the, the external climate, if you will, surrounding Jesus' birth. But there's also some some internal dynamics going on among the people of Israel. There are actually four primary groups that were always sort of fighting and competing to lead the people of Israel. I mean, these are some people that you've heard of, you've read about in the New Testament. There's the Pharisees, right? So the the Pharisees, they resided in Jerusalem. They attempted to shape religious life in Israel through their traditions. Jesus had many run-ins with these characters, with with the Pharisees and, and these legalistic Jews. Then you have the Sadducees. Okay? The Sadducees, they opposed the Pharisees. They opposed the strict legalism of the Pharisees. They only embraced the, the Torah, the, the Genesis you know, through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. They, they embraced the Mosaic law. They rejected the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, but they still had an influential place in the temple and in the life of Israel, in the, in the law courts. Then there's these, these people, the Essenes. Maybe you've heard of them, the Essenes. They lived in a commune near Qumran. And, and they were the ones who scribed and penned you know, and preserved what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They kind of lived off in this commune away from everybody. And, and they, they really focused on living especially pure lives. They devoted themselves to God. And they prayed that God would overwhelm and, and kick out the Romans. And then you have the zealots. Okay, the zealots is this group of people. They didn't so much pray for God to kick Rome out. They they were planning to kick Rome out themselves. These are the guys that are grabbing the swords and like they, they're gonna they're gonna kick Rome out and restore Israel. You know they, they pursued violent means of overthrowing Rome. And you have these four competing sort of sects, sects um, in Jude- in Judaism. <laughs> In, in Judah, they, they're always having this constant friction. They only, you know, in, in, it led to just this, this escalation of, of tension. In, um, and it was only like agitated more by the oppressive rule of Rome. Riots were common. Tension was commonplace. Galatians 4, 4 that we started with. At just the right time, at just the set time, God sent his son born of a woman. This is the setting. This is the climate. This is the political climate. This is the religious climate. This is the world stage onto which God inserts his son. Expectations. Expectations of the anticipated Messiah King were as high as they were diverse. So were the responses. I mean, we know Herod the Great's response, don't we? We know Herod the Great's response when he heard that a king had been born, when, when the wise men and the mag, magi showed up and said, hey, where's the king of the Jews that has been born that got Herod's attention? His paranoia, his insecurity rose up and we know what he did. He said, hey, tell me where he is too because I want to go worship him. Not, really wasn't his desire. And when the wise men never returned, you know, having been warned in a dream to, to not go back to Herod, What did Herod do? He ordered the massacre of every baby boy, two years old and younger, born in the land as his attempt to make sure that this king of the Jews doesn't grow up. The Jews, they had expectations, that the people of God had great expectations of the Messiah. I mean, this was a people who were obviously hurting, suffering when Jesus was born. Most of the Jews were hoping that when the Messiah came, he would begin a a new movement that would kick out the Romans, would kick the Romans' butt, kick them out, and get their land back. So when Jesus comes on the scene, now as an adult, and he begins his ministry, and he grabs a scroll, and he reads you know, we read about this in Luke 4. He, he, he reads the prophecy and he starts talking about the blind will see and the, the lame will walk and declare the year of the Lord. They start thinking, Jubilee, we're getting our land back. This guy's going to like usher in a new a new kingdom. And we're going to, he's going to restore the kingdom. We're going to get our land back. These were exciting words to them. They had expectations like that. I mean, even the, even the disciples, after spending three years Hanging out with Jesus, watching him, listening to him, participating with him. They still were thinking earthly kingdom. Remember James and John, like, hey Jesus, like, uh, when you establish this new rule on earth, uh, one of us wants to sit on your right and one of us wants to sit on your left. They were still, even the disciples were still expecting an earthly revolution, an earthly kingdom. They went armed into the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, just in case, if this is when it starts, if this is when we start kicking Rome's butt. The Pharisees that I mentioned, the Sadducees that I mentioned, the Zealots, the Essenes, they all had expectations on how the Messiah would fulfill their version and their understanding of power and kingdom. The Zealots especially, they were ready for a a bloody battle. In the end, Jesus was not... What anyone expected, but exactly what everyone needed. Jesus was not what anyone expected, but exactly what everyone needed. Pretty much everyone missed it. I think that's why, you know, John says this as he's reflecting on all this and he's writing his, his, his gospel in John 1, he, he says this The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And you know what? I've stopped judging, like, all the people that miss Jesus. Like, I, I think in my, in my immature Christianity, I used to, like, how did they miss it? You know, how did the innkeeper not, like, create space for Jesus? And I've decided I can't judge these people. I, they didn't have this. They were living the story real time. We have the advantage of looking back on the story. I, I can't judge the innkeeper for not housing a homeless couple if I drive by homeless people and do nothing. I, I can't judge them for missing Jesus when I think, even though I had the story, I still miss him, I still miss his, his appearance and his showing up and, and what he's doing. I mean, just imagine. Imagine the people of Jesus' day. They've been oppressed for so long. They've, they've suffered for so long. And now this baby is born and he grows up and he starts saying wild things. He starts doing crazy things. He, Jesus shows up. He grows up. He announces that the kingdom of God is here. It's intimately present. I can imagine people all over The land, who heard that, like grabbing their weapons, like, all right, we're going to overthrow Rome. We're we're, going to restore Israel to its status. Finally, revenge, justice, restoration. But the kind of kingdom they were expecting wasn't the kind of kingdom Jesus was bringing. Jesus would say things like this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. They start grabbing their swords. yeah. But I say, turn the other cheek. If a Roman guard asks you to carry his shield for a mile, carry it two miles. If anyone wants your shirt, give them your coat too. Show love to your neighbors and your enemies. James, John, you guys want to be great in the kingdom of God? You want to sit on the right and the left? You want to be great in my kingdom? Here's what you need to do. Serve. Lower yourselves. Humble yourselves. Serve. Deny yourselves. Take up your cross and follow me. The birth, the life, the message, the mission, the way of Jesus was so countercultural, so outside of what everyone was hoping for and expecting. I mean, love your enemies? Are you for real, Jesus? These Gentile Romans, they've taken our land. They've highly taxed us. They've raped and even killed and pillaged our people. Love your enemies? That's not what Joshua did. It's not what David did. It's not what Samson did. They went to war. Love your enemies? It's not what they did. But it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did. A king was indeed born that night in a cave just outside Bethlehem, in the shadow of that amazing, powerful palace. He just wasn't the kind of king that everyone was expecting, but he was exactly the kind of king the world needed and still needs. Today, you can go to the land of Israel. You can go there. I hope you get to someday, like I did, and visit the ruins of powerful people like Herod, I mean, his ruins are, even as ruins, they're impressive. But you know what? Herod's kingdom is done. Herod the Great has no kingdom anymore. His rule and reign is done. And unless you're a historian, you probably don't know anything about Herod the Great, except that he was responsible for killing a bunch of babies when Jesus was born. There's there's no ruins to visit for the buildings Jesus built. far as we know he didn't build any buildings but that baby humbly born in the shadows of great worldly wealth and power sparked a movement that is still alive today and on the move and we are part of it Jesus wasn't what anyone expected but he was exactly what everyone needs so what does all this have to do with us today you got to get there anytime you talk about stuff like this What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with us? May I suggest everything? Because if we're honest, at least I know I am, we're just like the people of Jesus' day. We're human beings. We have things going on in our lives. We are experiencing maybe suffering or injustice. We have things that have happened to us. We have things that are happening to us right now. We have hopes. We have dreams. We have expectations of God. And and what Jesus showing up in our situations and in our lives could and should look like and result in. We all have expectations of here's what we think God should do about this. Here's what we think God should do about that. Here's how we think God should show up in this situation or that situation. We have expectations. We're expecting. We're expecting God to move. Often in ways that benefit us. And, and, and want him to move in ways that we want him to move. But just like it did then. Consider this. The, the birth. The life. The death. And the resurrection of Jesus. Leads us today To the same question the people of Jesus' day had to ultimately answer. And I think this is the question. Whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom am I living for? Whose kingdom are we living for? Whose kingdom are you on the lookout for? Orienting around. Centered on. Pursuing. Participating in. What kingdom are you living for? When you look at your calendar and you consider what you spend your time on, whose kingdom are you living for? When you look at your bank accounts and see where your money goes, whose kingdom are you living for? When you consider how you invest your relational capital and your intellectual capital in the world, Whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you concerned about? Whose kingdom are you building? Yours? The world's? Or God's? And if God's. If we choose to to live for the kingdom of God. Then Jesus must be our example. And he must be our picture. And he must be the life that we Seek to imitate. So that means things like this. You want to be great? You have to become the least. The way of power is to humbly love and serve. To fully have life, you got to give your life. I mean, just even think about the very nature of of Jesus' birth. The way that the king of the universe who existed before time, consider the way he chose to make an entrance into creation, into the world. And consider the way he lived his life. Consider the way that he died. All of that is way bigger than simply achieving our salvation and going to heaven. He didn't do all of that and show us all of that just simply so that we could be saved and go to heaven, though that is part of it. Jesus has given us a pattern, a life to pattern ours after, a, a picture to imitate. He's showing us where real power comes from and what real power is all about. He's showing us what's really, really valuable in the kingdom of God, the only kingdom that lasts. I'd summarize like this. I? I think this is a true statement. As, as I think about the people of Jesus' day and their expectations, and I think about me and us today and our expectations, I'm wondering if I could summarize it like this. The disciples, the the, the people of Jesus' day, they wanted a kingdom. But without the cross, they didn't even understand the cross at that point in time. I mean, they, they they just wanted an earthly kingdom. They wanted Israel to be restored. They they wanted the kingdom without having to go through the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. I think we sometimes have the opposite problem. I think sometimes we just want the cross. Just get me to heaven. Like I'll say the prayer so I can go to heaven, and now I can live my life. We want the cross without the kingdom. They're inseparable. They go together. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is the way of the kingdom. So I, I leave us with this question. Whose kingdom are you living for? I invite the band to come back up. and As they come up, let me just Guide us in some reflection. I mean, the truth is, we live between two advents. We have the one advent that's already happened, the birth of Jesus Christ, the the coming of the King. And we eagerly wait and anticipate and long for the return of the King. We live between two advents. How then are we to live like Jesus did? were to live like Jesus did. Whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you participating in? I'm gonna give us I just want to give us one passage to reflect on. Maybe one of you guys could play a little music. I just want you to read this and reflect on it and, and see how God speaks to you. It's Paul writing in Philippians three. It says, I, I've told you often before, and I say it again, I mean with, with tears in my eyes. That there are many whose conduct shows us they are really enemies of the cross of Christ and they're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. They think only about this life here on earth. But, listen to this people, you, I, we, are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And so we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Whose kingdom are you living for? Sometimes we just need to be reminded where our citizenship is and then live for that kingdom and try to apply everything that's true of that kingdom into the current place we live, to to bring heaven to earth, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whose kingdom are you living for? Just let let the Holy Spirit speak to you right now. Whatever from our time together this morning, maybe it's something I said, maybe it's something different that the Lord's putting on your heart, but whatever is getting your attention right now, would you just pause and pay attention to it and receive it? Maybe even write it down. What's God saying to you this morning? And if God's speaking to you, there's a really good follow-up question. What are you going to do about it? What's God saying? What are you going to do about it? Will you stand with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this time together. We gather around the risen Jesus and his kingdom. And we long for his return and the fulfillment of that kingdom. But until then, we will live for your kingdom. Show us, help us. May we do it together. But Lord, we want to live for your kingdom. We want our expectations to be around the things that you expect of us. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's sing one more song.